sometimes I think about what I'm doing when I stand up here and talk as providing theological orientation to reality. And theology shouldn't be a scary word. It merely means a word about God. Uh, Theo, God, logos, word. A word about God. It's a way, in other words, it's how does what's true about God and what he's revealed about himself connect to reality. And that's what the Bible is. The Bible is not just sort of some recordings of people's inner contemplations. It is God's word. It's his gracious revelation to mankind and to his people about life and reality. And in some ways, you know, it's sad to me that I don't have four weeks to do Romans 8, or in some ways like a whole semester to do Romans 8, because there's so much good stuff in here. But on the other hand, there actually is a benefit to doing bigger portions of Scripture, because sometimes there are points to be made from the bigger themes that you might miss if you just look at a few verses each week. And so, like, tonight is one of those cases. Like, we could talk about Romans 8, like the first part about how there's no condemnation. That's awesome, and that would be a great sermon in and of itself. And then we could talk about how there's no separation from God. Nothing can separate you from his love. That would be awesome. There's stuff in here about uh, what it means to have the Spirit in you so that you can cry out, Abba, Father. And so we could say, you know, there's no condemnation, there's no separation from his love, there's no more being an orphan, and yet right in the middle of all that stuff is is this section about groaning. And I think it's helpful to see all of that stuff together, particularly when we think about theological orientation to life, because I think so many people, I think, are discouraged or... um, repelled, maybe isn't too strong a word, by Christians who don't know how to hold all those things together. By Christians who would love to talk about, there's no condemnation, and I'm a child of God, and isn't that awesome, but they don't know what to do with the groaning stuff. And they would just prefer to cut that part out of the Bible. And what Romans 8 is teaching us is that all of that stuff is going on at the same time. And if you want to know what it means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus, You have to understand the way you have to get used to all of that stuff being true all the time. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can separate you from his love. For those who have have, a relationship with Jesus, the Spirit has been put into their hearts that they can cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, you're mine. Yet, we groan. And the whole creation is groaning. Even the Spirit of God intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. So you can think of this as no condemnation, no separation, no more orphans, but groaning, groaning everywhere. That's Romans 8. And see, in a sense, if you don't see all of that together, you might get a really mistaken idea of what Christianity is about. Right, So I can't go into great depth on any of those things, but part of the point is the way all of those things need to wash over you together. Right, Because I think sometimes Christians feel like, well, sometimes I'm in this, sometimes I'm in that. No, you're in all of that all together, all at the same time. And if you don't understand that, I don't think you can really live like a Christian for very long. So let me uh, read Romans chapter 8. We'll pray, and then I'll seek to uh, illuminate some of this stuff. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law, death for lawbreakers, might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Do you have any water? I'd love it. Thanks. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear Again, rather the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, meaning God, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it. Patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And you can go home. Think about that. Now, I mean, there's so much amazing stuff in there. Let's pray that God would help us to understand a little bit of what he's teaching us here tonight. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless even the reading of your word. But also, we pray that through the foolishness of preaching, that you might help all of us here to taste a little bit more of your goodness and your grace and see a little bit more of your beauty and our need for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll start back at the top. There's no condemnation, but there's an ever-present battle. I think this whole passage is full of these tensions. And of course, it comes, real, comes to a head, as it were, in the middle, where it talks about the groaning, groaning everywhere. But even sort of the good stuff, the stuff that we like, is, is sort of gives and then takes away, in a sense. There's no condemnation, but you're in the middle of a battle. Now, I don't have time to go through all of what does it mean, the law of this and the law of that, and the flesh and the spirit and this realm and that realm. Suffice it to say, there's a battle going on. And it's a real, serious, intense battle. It's a battle that you didn't used to fight because it was true of you before you became a Christian. If you're a Christian tonight, if you are a Christian tonight, before you were a Christian, you weren't fighting this same battle. Oh, you may have tried to do this and not do this, But what the Bible says is that when you become a Christian, you enter into a new kind of warfare. Yes, you enter into a new kind of peace. What else does no condemnation mean except that you've been entered into a realm of peace, but at the same time you've entered into a realm of warfare and battle and struggle. As I've been saying over these last few weeks, to be a Christian means you've been set free to struggle. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Because through Christ Jesus, you've been set free from death. How? How? Because Christ suffered in the flesh. Notice Paul makes that specific point in verse 3 and verse 4. 
He says that the law was powerless. The law was powerless to change our hearts. The law was powerless to change us from the inside. Not because the law was bad. Remember we talked about this last week with Romans 7. The law is holy and good. But the law doesn't have the power to change our hearts. But Jesus came and has the power through what he did. What did he do? He died a death, a sacrificial death. And Paul puts it this way in verse 3, that what the law was powerless to do, God did. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. In other words, he came and took on human flesh. And because he took on human flesh, as it goes down here, it says, and so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. What does that mean? It means that someone had to die the death that lawbreakers deserve. What is the righteous requirement of the law? The righteous requirement of the law is all those who are traitors to God deserve death. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came, took on our flesh so that he could die in our place, so that the law would be fully satisfied. What that means is there is now no condemnation. That word now is very important. It doesn't mean that God never really was mad at the world, that some really overly zealous, guilty conscience religious people just sort of made that up to control people. But now, you know, we finally evolved to the point where we realized that that was never true. No, Paul is saying something has happened now. Now, in this time in which we are living, something has happened to produce this new effect of no condemnation. What is it? It's something real. It's something historical. It's something objective. Jesus Christ lived as a man with real flesh, just like we had, and he was crucified, hung on a cross, killed, tortured. And in that act, the righteous requirement of the law that those who sin deserve death was met. There's now no condemnation, not because God just woke up this morning and decided to be nice today. No, there's no condemnation now because Jesus did something that changed reality. So if you would be oriented to reality, you need to understand that there's something seriously wrong. Something that could only be rectified by the innocent Son of God taking on human flesh and dying a torturous death. So don't be naive. Don't be naive. Our world needs more than education. Our world, world needs more than communication. Our world needs something that has the power to get deep down into you and change your heart, change your basis for living, change everything about you. And in the gospel, we have that. So there's no condemnation. If you're in Christ, what this means is, if you are in Christ, you have God's love now. Present possession you have it. Why does that matter? Well, think about this. Have you ever been in a relationship where you felt you were just always having to sort of climb uphill? Or you felt like, I never really am sure if this person really likes me, 
You ever been in that kind of relationship? Yeah, I don't think you would describe that kind of relationship as full of joy and freedom. <laughs> that's, that's bondage. What Paul says in the middle of this chapter is, all of this stuff is not to put you into bondage again, but to bring you into freedom. And if God doesn't take it upon himself to settle the issue of your condemnation, then the best that you can hope for is that you might be able to get God to cut you a break now and then. But you could never know the blessedness of knowing that there is no condemnation. You could never know based on what you can do. You could never know that God smiles when he thinks about you. Now, for some of us, that's really hard to believe. It's really hard to believe that God smiles when he thinks about us. Because we don't smile when we think about us. But here's the, here's the thing. Jesus changes everything. There's no condemnation now. Who? For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Because in Christ Jesus, you died. Therefore, you've already been judged guilty. And the punishment has already been paid. And you don't need to keep paying it yourself with your guilt. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, you have God's love. That means you don't have to live in a relationship with God trying your very best to keep him liking you. You don't. Hallelujah. That's freedom. Yet, there's this battle going on. And part of the battle is like believing that you really aren't the same person you used to be. Like Paul has to bring that out. It's like, look, you're not in the realm of the flesh anymore. Like everything has changed about you. We talked about this when we talked about chapter 6. You were crucified with Christ. You were put to death. Your old identity as a slave to sin was crucified. Your new identity if you're a Christian, is somebody who's been set free to struggle. But don't minimize this battle. Don't just say, oh yeah, I love that. No condemnation. Awesome. I'm going to make that my life verse. But, you know, that's one verse. Then there's like eight or nine verses about the warfare. They're both hard to believe. I think it's difficult to believe that there's no condemnation. It's also, for some people, difficult to believe that God really has us in the midst of warfare. John Piper had a great line in his book on missions where he says, life is war. It's, that's not all it is, but it's always that. And if you think that the goal of Christianity is so that you would never have to struggle again, well, I'm sorry to tell you that that's not the case. There's now no condemnation so that you can do battle. So that you can, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. Do you know, if you fail to understand that there's no condemnation, you won't be very long in the fight. Because your experience in the fight is you feel like a failure all the time. You have to know that there's no condemnation, not based upon how well you're doing in the fight, but based upon how well Jesus did in the fight so that you can be energized to engage the fight 
again and again and again. See, at one level, Christians have to get used to feeling like failures. At the same time, they have to get used to feeling like people whom God smiles when he thinks of. And for some people, it's harder to believe one, and for others, it's harder to believe the other. Some people, it's really easy to believe that God smiles. Why wouldn't he smile? I'm great. (laughs) And then there's other people, probably most of you, that feel like, I can't imagine that God smiles when he thinks of me. And that's because you're thinking of you. But when God thinks about you, he thinks about Jesus. Do you understand that? This is the idea of substitution, and it's central to to understanding there's no condemnation. So that's the first thing. There's no condemnation but an ever-present battle. The second point of theological orientation is there's freedom, the freedom of assurance we have, rather than the slavery of fear. And this gets us down into verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. Now here he starts talking about this issue of assurance, confidence that God loves you. It's one thing to hear God say, there's no condemnation, like he says here in this passage. But then there's also the issue of, do you really feel that? Do you really have confidence of that? And how can you know that he really loves you? That's the issue of assurance. It's a very important topic. It's a very important issue to wrestle with to live the Christian life. I've heard Tim Keller say it so strongly as this, that assurance of salvation is the power to live the Christian life. That if you're not sure of God's love for you based upon Jesus you won't have any energy to live for God. If you're not convinced that God loves you based on what he did in Jesus, then all the Christian stuff that you're trying to do isn't really Christian stuff. It's really stuff to try to get God to like you. You can never really live for God and serve him unless this issue of what he thinks about you has been settled. Unless that issue is settled, it it, it soils everything you do. So assurance is important, but it's very poorly understood. Now, I actually had the opportunity in seminary, I'm so grateful, to take a whole class for a whole semester on perseverance, apostasy, assurance, these, these issues. Some of it wasn't fun, but the issue of assurance was very important, and I find it so helpful that I t- took that, but a lot of Christians have never thought about it very much. Here's, here's, here's my concern. A lot of evangelical Christians, a lot of people have been sort of, sort of evangelized or brought to faith in a context where they tell you, here's all you got to do. Here's the little steps. You pray Jesus into your heart, and now if you've done that prayer, don't worry about it again. You're a Christian, and here's your two verses that you need to remember that if you're a Christian, no one can snatch you out of God's hand. Um, now, there's a lot of truth in that, okay? Like, there's Bible verses in that, and those are true. But, you know, that sort of flattens out a very, I, th- I would say, pastorally nuanced issue in a very unhelpful way. Or sometimes you hear the phrase, once saved, always saved. I don't even like to say, yeah, I agree with that. I believe that those who are true children of God, God will keep them in his love. Nothing can separate. Absolutely. 
But generally when people use that phrase, what they mean is, because I walked forward and said a prayer, therefore I never need to think about whether I'm a Christian or not. And I will tell you, I don't think that the Bible teaches that at all. There are three things that Paul gives us in this passage to help us come to a well-grounded confidence and assurance that we really are Christians. And all three of them are vitally important. And they all need to function together. Now, here's a couple things, a couple caveats before I explain this to you. The first is, I believe the Bible teaches clearly that you can be saved and yet have a lot of doubts about whether you're saved. I don't think the Bible anywhere teaches that you're saved by the amount of confidence you have that you're saved. And I think in a lot of church settings where people really emphasize, do you know the day and the hour when you prayed the prayer, what ends up happening to people who grow up in those settings is they fall into this idea that unless I'm absolutely confident, then I'm made to feel like I'm probably not a Christian. I mean, I grew up in that kind of setting. It's like every time there's an altar call, you better be absolutely sure. Are you really sure that you prayed Jesus into your heart and that you really, 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 really meant it? Are you sure? What if you didn't really, 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 really mean it enough? Then it might, maybe didn't take. So, you know, but maybe you should come down again and do it and really, really mean it this time. Right? Some of you probably can identify with that sort of context. And what they're basically telling you is if you're sitting in this pew tonight and we're having this altar call, and if unless you're absolutely perfectly convinced with no doubts at all that you're a Christian, you don't have a right to think you're a Christian. And you better become a Christian all over again. Which is a way of saying that you're saved by the confidence that you have. Which really does a number on introspective people. Right? It just kills them. And like most of you, right? Um, it just kills you. Um, so I, I think that that's really important to understand. You know, there's a great, um, there's a great verse in 1 John 4, 16 where it says, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. But so many people in Christian churches are taught to rely on their confidence that they love God. And if you don't have a lot of confidence... Maybe just by your temperament, you don't have much confidence about anything. And then people bring that into the spiritual life and think, well, maybe I'm not really a Christian. Well, here's, here's the thing. It's important for you to understand that there is a difference between being saved and being sure you're saved. And your sense of how sure you are that you're saved can go up and down throughout your life. It can vary from person to person. You know, we could, you know, I could do like 10 convos on this. It's a, it's a complicated topic, but I want you to understand that the Bible doesn't just sort of leave you sort of out there, nor does the Bible say all you have to go on is whether or not you pray to prayer. Paul in here actually lays down three things that need to work together to help us become more grounded because God does want us to know that we're saved because the power to live the Christian life comes from knowing that God loves us and is pleased with us. So, here's the first. The first is, we can have assurance because of God's promises. That's the beginning of the chapter, right? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, how do you, how do you know that God loves you? How do you know that God loves you? Well, you have to start with, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, the basis and the most important basis for how you know that God loves you are the promises of God. 
Similarly, down at the end of the chapter, um, if God is for us, who can be against us? He, didn't, he who did not give up his own son but gave him up, will he not also along with him give us all things? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, right? All this stuff, these are all promises. These are all promises, and it's the basis. So the first question is, have you trusted the promises? Have you cast yourself upon Jesus and said, unless your promises are true, I have no hope in the world. Help my unbelief, just like we prayed. I think that's one of the best prayers in the Bible. I believe, help me in my unbelief. Don't believe that you have to have perfect, confident belief to believe. Belief is full of doubts, real belief, because real belief involves thinking. And you don't have to, you know, if you think, you probably got reasons to doubt. So it's all mixed together. So that, that's the first. The second, the second is fruit in our lives. This is verse 14. Now, a lot of people don't understand what this verse is talking about. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. This is not like, I don't know, so I read that verse sometimes and I think, you know, this image of the, like the water diviner, you know, like these guys that take the sticks and they just sort of wander around and they find where a well is, you know. I don't know, maybe you don't know about these people. No, Joseph Smith was one of them, the guy that founded Mormonism, but, you know, that was his first career. Um, but this, you know, it's, it's like, it's not being led by God in the sense that I'm driving up to Belmont and I'm praying that God is going to lead me to the perfect parking space. And that's what it means to be led by God. No, the context, all the verses before this, he's talking about this warfare. He's talking about living either in a way that you're led by the Spirit or led by the flesh, what he means in verse 14, all those who are led by the Spirit of God or sons of God, is not all those who sort of have this ooey-gooey mystical sense that God wants me to go here or go to college here or major in this major. You know, that's not what he's talking about at all when he's talking about being led by the Spirit of God. He's talking about living like a Christian. Those who live like Christians should have confidence that they are Christians. Now, that could be really mis used if it was by itself. But it's not. It's in conjunction with there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But furthermore, those who are led by the Spirit of God, in other words, there should be some fruit in your life. There should be some evidence that you're not the same person. And then the third is this idea about adoption. We can have assurance because of Adoption, verse 15. If by the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I believe that Paul is talking here about an experience, a mystical experience, if you will, a feeling like God's child, an experience that's given by the Spirit, which gives us confidence to cry out to God as our Father. It's one thing to tell yourself you're God's child because the Bible promises that if you cast yourself upon him, he won't cast you out. And it's, and it's another thing to say, and in addition to that, I see evidence of fruit in my life. But Paul's talking about an even further dimension of this assurance where the spirit of God testifies with your spirit that you are a child of God. In other words, um, like most of the time, you're trying to tell yourself, believe what the Bible says. Heart, believe what the Bible says. There are times when the Spirit of God comes in and says, believe it, and you do. It's not an all-the-time experience, but it's a real experience. 
Now, let me say this. It's vital that we not go astray here by thinking that you can just pick one of these three. All three of these have to work together. In other words, if you have one without the others, you really might be living with false hope. In other words, if you've asked God into your heart, trusted the promises, however you want to describe it, but you've never sensed any kind of peace with God, you've never sensed that he's your father, you've never seen any change, As a matter of fact, you've not lived any different than you did before that. You may be a Christian, but you may not. And I would say, I suspect that if that's true about you, if the only thing you have to go on is I prayed a prayer when I was 10 years old, you probably don't have a lot of confidence that you're a Christian. I'm almost sure of it. And I'm not sure you should have a lot of confidence. Hear me well. You may genuinely be a Christian, but God doesn't want you just to eke by and barely be a Christian. God wants you to be sure of his love. I mean, he demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't do it off in a corner somewhere so that you could wonder whether or not he loves you. He wants you to know that he loves you. Similarly, if you would say, well, you know, I've never really trusted in God. I've never really prayed to him. Um, I've never sensed that he's really my father or any, any of that kind of stuff. But, you know, all I can tell you is I used to live like a hellion and now I don't live like that anymore. Well, you may be a Christian, but you may be not. And I'm glad that you've reformed your life. But fruit without trust and without the testimony of the Spirit may be giving you false hope as well. And then there's the third one. The third one is a little stranger to think about. How could, how could you have the testimony of the Spirit without the other two? Well, it may not be the real spirit you know, testifying, but it could be that you just are like, well, I've just always known that God loves me and thinks I'm his special child. Oh, okay. Well, have you ever like confessed your sin and asked him to forgive you? Oh, no, no, he just loves me and I, I just know it. Oh, okay. Have, have you ever seen any evidence of like him at work in your life? No, but I just know he loves me, Right? Like, you could have a sense that I'm God's child, and I just know it. And I can't talk you out of it, but you may be deceived. Now, again, you could be a Christian, but you won't have a lot of confidence that you're a Christian. So that's, that's it. There's this assurance, assurance, rather than slavery of fear. See, I don't want you, and God doesn't want you, living in fear. He wants you to know that you're a child of God. And that's why the Bible says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Strive to make your calling and election sure. Does that sound like a strange verse? What it's not saying is work for your salvation. It's saying make your calling and election sure. In other words, it's helpful for you to be confident that God loves you. It helps you fight against doubt and fear and unbelief. And if you are content to not really know whether God loves you or not, you basically are like going into battle with no weapons. Right? So if you don't know the word of God, you don't know any of the promises of God, then when you feel like a miserable piece of crap, you won't have anything to battle with. And if basically, like, you won't repent of any of the ways that you live, and you're living in sort of a way that makes you feel guilty all the time, 
Well, it's going to be really hard for you to do battle with fear and unbelief. The Puritans used to say that one of the reasons you should avoid sinning is not so that God would be mad at you, but because when you sin and you live in unrepentant sin, it clouds your sense of God's love. And it's just sort of this vicious spiral down. Because the more you doubt his love, the more you feel like, well, who cares how I live then? And then you doubt his love even more, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. But we've got to go on. Future glory, too, in this passage. But present groaning. Romans 8, 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's a remarkable verse, and that's a verse that I confess I find difficult to believe. I'm much more conscious of the present sufferings. I don't think nearly as much about the glory that will be revealed, not just to us. It's not, see, it's not just a sense that, well, you know, when we get to heaven, we'll see everything and it'll be awesome. No, he doesn't say to us, though I think that will be true. He says in us. That there's going to be a glory revealed in you. That you're going to be transformed in such a way that it's going to offer the ultimate perspective on everything you've ever suffered. Now, I can't explain that to you, but God promises that to you. And Paul uses this word, I reckon. In other words, like I've put these two things on two sides of the scale, and I've considered which is weightier. And the, the glory that is coming is weightier than the present sufferings. This is a guy that had his head cut off. This is a guy, like you read like his list of the things he suffered. And he says, compared to the glory that will be revealed in us, it's not even worth comparing. It's not even worth comparing. Wow. So what's he talking about here? Future glory but present groaning. Who all's groaning? The creation's groaning. In other words, something is terribly wrong with the world, and the evidence is everywhere. Now understand this. God subjected the creation to frustration. The Bible nowhere says that the creation is sinful. It says that it's frustrated. That's very interesting. A lot of Christians, I think, misunderstand that. The creation is good. Matter of fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, it's a doctrine of demons to teach people that the creation is not good. And a lot of sort of super spiritual people like to say, well, spiritual things are good, but, you know, enjoying nature or enjoying exercise or enjoying good food or good music, that stuff's all kind of bad. No. Paul says that's a doctrine of demons. But the creation is frustrated. Why is it frustrated? Because when mankind, God's stewards, the crown of creation, the ones who were to take dominion as stewards to rule in God's behalf, to bring about the God-glorifying potential that he built into this world, when Adam and Eve refused to take that role, it screwed up everything. All of creation is out of kilter because Adam and Eve are not taking their rightful role. And neither are their descendants. And so... There's frustration everywhere because we try to use the creation for our own selfishness rather than trying to serve God in the way we care for everything that he's made. 
So the creation is frustrated. And it will be until God comes back again and makes all things right. But not only is the creation groaning, we are groaning. And notice he makes the point, we, uh, how does he say it? Yeah, we who, we ourselves, right? Look at this, verse 22, 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, and then this little phrase, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. He wants to make sure like, you get the tension of that. We who are followers of Jesus and have the Spirit in us, we groan. Because there's a lot of people, I think, that feel like, well, if I really had the Spirit, or if I really had faith, I wouldn't be groaning. Absolutely not. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit are groaning. And Paul didn't say, you're groaning, because you just haven't grown enough yet, and you haven't learned enough stuff, and you're not an apostle like me. You guys are groaning, but I'm not. No, we are groaning. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And you need to understand that. Because otherwise, you'll think that your groaning is all a result of your unbelief. Or, or maybe evidence that you're not even following Jesus. Groaning is par for the course for people who have the Spirit. And it should make sense to you why that is. Because one of the things it means to become a Christian, to follow Jesus, is to begin to take on the heart of God. To hate the things he hates and to love the things he loves. And the more you become closer to the heart of God, the more groaning becomes a part of your life. Because God himself, he says in the book of Isaiah, is screaming, panting like a woman in childbirth until things are made right. And they're not right yet. I think sometimes we think that we're the only ones who are groaning, that God could care less. No, the, no, the Christians groan because we have the Spirit who's groaning in us. We have the creation all around groaning us. We, we, we understand, the close, as you come into Christianity and you begin to read the Bible, you get a clearer picture of what God made us for. And that has to increase your groaning. So, you, you know, do not think that groaning is the mark of immature believers, Groaning increases. Yes, you get joy and peace when you come to Jesus, but you get groaning like you've never understood and you've never known. And I would say you get, you get new groaning that you never even were aware of before. Because not only do you, you know, not only do you think, well, wow, that's really messed up. That's really unjust. But you say, that must really break the heart of God. And there's a new dimension to the groaning. And it only makes sense because the Spirit is groaning too. What a remarkable passage. Now, I don't buy the view that what Paul's talking about here is speaking in tongues. I just don't think that's completely foreign to the context. Some people say, oh, this is the heavenly prayer language where we you know, speak in tongues and nobody understands it because here we have the Spirit groaning in words that, you know, too deep for words. First of all, it doesn't say he's speaking in unintelligible words. It says too deep for words. Not only that, it's the spirit who's groaning, not the people. And third, that sort of speaking in tongues is completely foreign to this context. It's not in sort of the purview of this passage at all. And the reason I think this matters, I don't normally like go out of my way to sort of tell people why I think they're wrong about their interpretation of the Bible. The reason I think this is important is you end up sort of just regarding this as, oh, that's that phenomenon that some of my friends do. And then you miss what Paul's trying to get at here that's so important for you to know, which is that God groans. Do you know how 
incredibly sweet that is to know that God groans. This is one of my favorite verses in the book of Isaiah. In all of our distress, he too is distressed. Isn't that so precious to know? That God doesn't just sort of, sort of keep himself up there at a distance, but he's groaning. He's groaning. Incredible truth. The Spirit himself is groaning and interceding, praying for us. And I love this, in accordance with God's will. Do you ever struggle with wondering to know if your prayers are in accordance with God's will? Part of me would, I just want to say to you, just relax. You may not be praying for God's will, but the Spirit is praying in accordance with God's will. That'd be great if you were too, but if you're not, it's okay, because I think his prayers are pretty powerful, right? And that's why I think that Paul can have confidence that God works all things for the good, because the Spirit is praying in accordance with God's will. Last point, there's present confidence and future security because the power of God in the gospel. I love the tone Paul takes here at the end of this chapter. He's so confident, he's almost defiant. We know that in all things, verse 28, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Why? And he gives us a bunch of theology. And, uh, you know, I know sometimes people get freaked out by predestination. I'm not even really going to talk about it, except to say it has to mean something because it's in the Bible. And I don't think it means that he just foreknows what you're going to do because he uses this, the word foreknow here too. And I don't think it would make sense for him to use the same word or the same concept with two different words like that. So you've got to wrestle with that. But I'm not going to help you tonight with that. What I am going to show you is this fascinating thing. Glorified is in the past tense the verse, at the end of verse 30. Now, how can that be? Is there anybody in this room that's glorified? That glorified means that you're like Jesus, that you don't sin anymore? Anybody here? There? Yeah, Caleb, you're almost there, I know. Yeah. Just got to work on your uh, taste in hats. And, and <laughs> no, I'm teasing. That was unfair, wasn't it? Um, and it is for, No, I can edit it out. I, you know, you never know. Well... No, yeah, maybe. All right, so listen. You're not glorified, but Paul talks about it like it's already done. There's actually a, like a whole category in Greek grammar for this. The prophetic, uh, what do they call it? The prophetic use of the heiress. <laughs> it's the, the idea that it's, so, it's so, such a sure thing that if you've been foreknown, which really, you remember to know in the Bible, you know, when Adam knew Eve, like babies came out, right? It's not just he knew about you. It's talked about intimate knowledge, relationship. Those he foreknew, those same ones are glorified. It's this unbroken chain. This is the, another way of, like, of how Jesus says, you know, all those that come to me, you know, I'll not lose any of them. And at the very end of his life, in his high priestly prayer, he says to his father, those that you gave me, I didn't lose a single one. That's what he's saying here. So, Paul has confidence because the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all those who believe. Remember chapter 1? The theme of Romans? Therefore, you can be talked about as somebody who's already glorified because there is no possibility that won't happen if you're a child of God. Why? why? Why is Paul so confident? I mean, I love that. It's almost like trash-talking unbelief here. 
You have to learn how to argue with your unbelief, you know. He says, who can stand against us? Come on. Who can do it? Who can stand? Right? I love the way Martin Luther said one time, when the devil comes to you and tells you that you're a miserable piece of, you know, so-and-so, said, don't argue with him. Don't argue with the devil. Say, devil, I know I am. I'm actually worse than you realize. But go take it up with Jesus because he lived and died in my place. He said, don't try to argue with the devil and sort of boast in your righteousness and how he, he's really like condemning you unfairly. No, you deserve all the condemnation. But at the same time, you don't because Jesus lived and died in your place. So here's the thing. If God is for you, God is the one who judges. So if the judge is on your side and says that there's no, no condemnation for you, there's nobody left who matters a hill of beans to condemn you. I think one of the great tragedies is we think that we matter a hill of beans. And so when we condemn ourselves, we think that we trump what God says about us. And while that may masquerade as sort of a poor self-image, in some ways, it's also pride. So we may need to repent. In the gospel, God takes our side. God is for you. Has that really sunk into your heart? There's a lot of people that aren't for you. There's some people that are for you. But God is for you. Are you still suspicious of his love? But, again, God gave his son for us. We can have confidence he'll never give up. But can't you understand that when Paul's saying here, neither death nor life nor all these things will separate you from the love of God? I think he expects that those will be our present experience. Or he wouldn't have to say that. So while there's no condemnation, there's no separation, there's no more living as orphans, life is full of groaning, and the present experience of God's children here, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, and nakedness. And then Paul quotes the Old Testament in verse 36 to say, and it's always been that way. God's people have always been those who are like sheep to the slaughter. So I don't know what you signed up for. To me, like this is a very sobering, but very encouraging passage. Because I could just tell you, I lived in the slough of despair, so to speak. That's a reference to the Pilgrim's Progress, in case you never read that. But I, I lived in this point of despair because somebody told me that they thought, based on the Bible, it was at least theoretically possible that a child of God could lose their salvation. Even though it had probably never really happened, it was at least theoretically possible. That was all it took for me to be plunged into the depths of despair for years. And then I remember this, this pastor, and of course when I was plunged in the depths of despair, the last thing I wanted to do was read the Bible. So all during that time, I'm not reading the Bible, and then I met this pastor, and he said, really, why do you believe that? I was like, well, somebody argued it from this pastor. He's like, well, haven't you ever read Romans 8? Like, there's nothing that'll separate you. Yeah, but I can separate myself. Oh, really? I think you're part of the all creation. You know, I think you're in there. And, and God, you know, Paul couldn't have excluded anything else more completely than he does. Like, there's almost no way to say it any stronger than he says it here. So thank God that even your unbelief cannot overcome God's persistent, dogged love. Isn't that good news? Yeah. So Romans 8 ends sober but confident. And I think that's the way we should be living as well. Let's pray.